chapter 1 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Hebrews together. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can listen and read along this morning. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible your own and take it home and make a good friend out of it and the God that it reveals. We pick things up in verse 4 where the writer is speaking of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he, that is God the Father, ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak which you will fold them up, and they shall be changed, but you are the same, and your years shall not fail." But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? And then concerning the angels, he declares, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you as we do so often, but we never mean it any less for its frequency. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open this book up in our hands and on our laps to turn to it for your teacher and the author of this book, your Holy Spirit, to be in this room and to open it up to us, Lord. We thank you for every revelation you have given to us in your word of yourself and of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, for every reason that these verses are in your book, every single thing that they are intended to accomplish in each one of our lives today, we pray that it would accomplish exactly that, the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Bless us today, Lord. Give us a greater vision of yourself and of your Son and of your purposes for our lives. And we ask it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This letter of the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who had trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and had also 
become his disciples, his followers, and had walked with Jesus for some length of time. But now they're being tempted to return to their religious heritage and and in their particular religious heritage to return to a salvation based upon works. They're going to return to this erroneous idea that somehow we can make ourselves acceptable before God on the basis of our own human effort or that I can make myself acceptable for heaven on the basis of some works that I might do, religious or otherwise. And they're, they're thinking about making this change to leave Jesus in, in a certain respect and return back to uh, their religious heritage. They're not uh, making this decision on the basis of uh, something that is biblical or even something that is rational. This is something that is an emotional decision-making that is taking place inside of them. You have to be fair with these folks, and the writer is going to develop this a little bit later in the book. They are paying a big price at that moment in history to stay faithful to the Lord. When we were studying First and Second Peter and the tremendous persecution of Rome against Christians at that time, This is the same timing of the book of Hebrews. These Jewish Christians are in the middle of that crushing persecution. And on top of that, because of their faith in Christ from a Jewish background, they have burnt bridges back to relationships and others have burnt bridges on them that wasn't something that was typical of a Gentile or a non-Jew coming to know Christ. They're paying a price to be faithful to the Lord. And so whenever they find themselves, and they're not unusual in that, when we find ourselves in this place where we're paying a great price to stay faithful to the Lord, then all of a sudden we begin, can begin to think about when life was easier for us, when life was more comfortable, or when life seemed a little more secure and a little less volatile. And that's going on in their minds. And they kind of want to go home a little bit to a simpler, what they perceive to be a simpler and a quieter life that they knew before becoming a Christian. That's why it's so important when you invite people to come to know the Lord and you say, listen, you need to give your life to the Lord. And, and, uh, and then everything after that becomes a cinch for you. It's so easy. You just they buy a lazy boy chair and you lean back and... They bring you chocolate bonbons all day and, uh, and soft drinks and, and the remote. It's just the easiest. It isn't that way. And we come to, come to know Christ and the hardship is there and they were facing it and, and they start to waver. And the writer of the book of, of Hebrews stops them in the track, their tracks right in the middle of their wavering and he forces them to really think through what they are about to do on an emotional uh, uh, decision. And because he knows they're about to make a decision, they're going to deeply regret, and he wants them to make their decision on the basis of the Scriptures. And so what he does is he comes to them, 
And you see even here in chapter 1, the whole book is like this where he's quoting scriptures from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, speaking of Christ. And so he speaks to them of the superiority of Jesus over everything they're being tempted to return to. And by the way, that letter, a letter, could be written concerning anything that we're being tempted to go back into, whatever our background. For them, it was to go back into a man's, a work-centered religious system. But for anything that you and I became Christians out of and were tempted to go back into, a comparable letter could be easily written to speak to us, to wake us up, to bring us to our senses of the superiority of the life that we are living now, knowing Christ for all of its hardship in a fallen world compared to what the life that we left in order to follow Him. And so this could be written a a lot of different ways. It's written the way that it is because it deals with with these uh, specifics. And the great point that the writer is making is that Jesus is better and He is better than anything we have left this world, left in this world, in order to follow Him. He is better than any sacrifice we have ever made in order to leave that behind, in order to walk with Him. Whether that's a man-made or a man-dominated religious system, or whether it's paganism or secularism, or just plain old sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of sin. It is our privilege to know Him. And it is our privilege to be able to walk with the Lord, whatever the price might be that we pay in terms of rejection or persecution or hardship, again, because of the fallenness of this world. Now, I think that sometimes when we think of Jesus, and you can put your own self to the test. Don't shout out. It's a private test. But I think that m- most people, and, and maybe even most of us as Christians, When we think of Jesus, we think of him solely from the portrait in the Gospels. And it is a wonderful portrait. There's nothing wrong with it. But it isn't a complete portrait of of Jesus. And sometimes if we think of him solely in the context of his 33 years of his incarnation from the moment he was introduced into human history physically in his birth in Bethlehem to Joseph and Mary to the time of his death upon the cross, his burial, his, uh, uh, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven 40 days later. There is, there is a whole world about Jesus that goes beyond those 33 years of his incarnation and his ministry here upon the earth. And, and so sometimes we can just think of him almost exclusively as kind of that uh, proverbial picture in the Christian bookstore where here is kind of a shepherd with a robe on and he's got the lamb over his shoulders and that is Jesus and that is all that he is and that is all that he will ever be as wonderful as that portrait is. But the fact of the matter is there's a side of Jesus that we have not seen yet and that we will see when we one day see him in the context of the heaven that he came from. 
and to see the glory, His glory in that heaven that He came from to enter into the world, to see His glory in the context of that heaven. I think about the Apostle John and of all of the apostles. It's like who had a closer more friendly, more intimate relationship with Jesus during the three and a half years of his public ministry than the Apostle John had. He was very friendly with him. When, he sat, when they sat for the meals and they reclined and the whole thing, he's in the place of honor and the whole, whole deal. He just spent his whole life being as close to Jesus as he, as he possibly could. And yet when he writes the book of Revelation and he is taken into the glory of heaven itself, whether physically or by virtue of vision. When he sees Jesus in that context, he had seen Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James. But even now when he sees Jesus in his full heavenly glory, in the context of the heaven that he has come from, he falls down before the Lord, he tells us, as dead at the feet of Jesus. That's his reaction. And Jesus, he tells us, laid his right hand on him, saying to him, don't be afraid, because he was, he was terrified. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That is the truth. And what the writer of the book of Hebrews is doing is bringing out some of this broader understanding of this Jesus that we know and that we love. And he's bringing it out to these discouraged Hebrew disciples of Jesus. That Jesus is not the leader of some feel-good club in this world, where you just come and you go any time that you want on any given week or month or year at every whim or every emotion that we feel or every difficulty that we face, but that we have committed our lives to the following of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as we've seen in verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to get them to see this bigger picture of Jesus. He's the Son of God. He is appointed the heir of all things. Everything believes to him, belongs to Him. Everything on the earth, everything in the heavens, all of creation, the worlds were made by Him. He upholds everything by His power, and He sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And it's almost like the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying to these uh, Hebrew believers, and you're going to leave this Jesus for what? Help me understand the wisdom of that. Help me to understand that this is a biblical decision or even a logical decision, something greater than a very wrong-headed emotional decision that you're making here. What in the world are you thinking? Because what you're thinking concerns the most important thing in your whole life, and you need to be thinking clearly about it. And so he then gives them this wake-up call that is called the book of Hebrews. And sometimes we need that wake-up call to appreciate uh, what we have and who we are because of Jesus. And then now in laying the case for the superiority of Christ, 
the Holy Spirit now turns his attention to the subject of angels. He's already laid down the case that Jesus is better or superior to the Old Testament prophets, and now he declares Jesus is better or he is superior to angels. Now, one of, in this passage, we have one of the greatest revelations concerning angels in all of the Bible. You notice in verse 7, it says, Of angels and of the angels, he, the Father, says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And in other words, what God is saying here is that angels obey the will of God and they do so with the speed of wind and with the intensity of fire. In other words, when they are given something to do, they don't fumble the ball. They do what the Father tells them to do. So they're the polar opposite of the unfaithful man who's described in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 19, that declares, Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. So they're a pain in the tooth. The pain in the foot. There's something about a foot out of joint. If anybody's ever had a foot out of joint, you can then speak to me afterwards. And the next time I teach the book of Hebrews, I'll give you a platform to explain it. That's an ongoing pain until that gets taken care of. Is there any pain like a toothache? Every day, here you write this down, those of you who are younger. Every day your teeth don't hurt is a good day. So, but that's what it's like for an unfaithful person that is in where something of great responsibility has been handed to them and, and then they are unfaithful in taking care of it. They're a constant pain to the person that is, you know, bearing the consequences of their lack of faithfulness. And the reason that the diligence of angels is significant or important for us to know as Christians is that God uses them to impact our lives. And you notice in verse 14, one of the premier verses on angels in all of the Bible, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So, in other words, angels are servants of God. They're used by God in the lives of those who will inherit salvation. So they're sent forth. God sends them forth. He dispatches them as is necessary. They are dispatched to minister to or to serve on his behalf those who will inherit salvation. That can be understood a couple different ways or can include two different things. First, it can refer to the ministry of angels in the lives of those who aren't Christians yet. The Lord uses angels as as instruments in their lives as a part of bringing them uh, to himself. Perhaps uh, you're a Christian here this morning, or perhaps you're not a Christian yet this morning, and you can look back in some kind of close brush with death or some difficult situation that you were in, and you escaped death by the proverbial skin of your teeth, and you realize, I should be dead There is no natural reason for me to be alive. The fact that I'm alive is supernatural. 
And you, and a person can believe that and not even believe in God. And there, and there is in that the great possibility that an angel was involved in your deliverance uh, from that in order to buy your time to one day give your life uh, to the Lord. It can also refer to uh, God's use of angels in the lives of Christians, those of us who already know the Lord. So then how in the world would it be to those who will future inherit salvation? Now, salvation is spoken of in kind of three ways related to a Christian. And uh, we have been saved, the Bible says, from the penalty of our sin. And so speaking of our past, we've been forgiven our past. We've also been saved from the power of sin in our life because the Holy Spirit has come into our life. We have a power to live a life different from the life that we lived before. But the Bible also teaches that this God's salvation has a future element for us and that one day we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin when we enter into heaven. So the three Ps related to salvation, the past, the present, and the future, and so saved from the power of sin or the, pre- the, the penalty of sin, the presence of the power... <laughs> saved from the penalty of sin save from the power of sin, and then one day from the very presence of, of sin. And, and, and then one day when we are in heaven and we are now saved from the very presence of sin, never to experience it again, then the ministry of angels toward us is going to be completely unnecessary. And so this is where verse 14 is where the idea of a guardian angel, and there's nothing wrong with that concept, the guardian angel uh, comes from, and, uh, and it, I, I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe in the light of this in, in guardian angels where if, if the demonic realm, Satan, who was a fallen angel, and the, and the angels that followed him in his rebellion against God who are demons, if they are allowed to come against us as Christians in spiritual warfare and our relationship with the Lord and our service to the Lord, then it isn't inconceivable that God will use angels who were faithful to their first estate and didn't join the rebellion to be an assistance and an asset in some way to us as we're in the middle of the battle that we're in uh, in this, this world as Christians. He c- refers to these angels as spirits in verse 14. In other words, uh, their activity goes on all around us all of the time, but it is largely uh, unseen. And one of the great pictures of all of this uh, is in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel began to seek the Lord related to a particular issue. And when Daniel began to pray and seek the Lord on a particular issue, there was an angel that was dispatched to bring revelation to Daniel. Uh, the angel appears 21 days later. And his explanation to Daniel is, as soon as you began to pray, I was dispatched to bring you this revelation. But on the way, I came into contact with the prince of Persia, speaking of a much higher, evidently, demonic uh, force or uh, fallen angel who was over Persia, the culture, the sin, the everything. I mean, a very high-ranking. And, and so this high-ranking demonic being 
uh, was able to hinder this other angelic being for a time, the angel declared, until Michael the archangel arrived, took on the issue related to the prince of Persia, and now I've freed the angel, said to Daniel, to bring you the message. And so all this stuff is going on all around us. How does it fit in the big picture? And where does the, you know, ministry of angels and the ministry of the Holy Spirit begin and end off? And how is it all interrelated? I don't know. Uh, I don't know all of that. I just know that God uses it for his purposes and we ought to know uh, that he does. Now, notice in our passage concerning the superiority of Jesus to angels, he tells us in verse 5, First of all, Jesus' superiority is revealed in the fact that he possesses a more excellent name than angels do. What is his more excellent name? Son. (laughs) That's a more excellent name than Michael or Gabriel or whatever other name might be for an angel or just the categorization of angel altogether. And so the Holy Spirit quotes Psalm 2-7 and then 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and declaring that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Now, someone might say, well, I think I vaguely remember when we were going through the book of Job that the angelic beings that had access to the throne of God were called the, um, were called the sons of God, and that that phrase is used concerning angels even in the book of Psalms once or twice, and you would be absolutely correct concerning that. But here Jesus is called the Son of God, and angels are never referred to as the Son of God. No individual angel is, but they are referred to collectively as the sons, plural, of God, even as we are called as Christians the sons of God in that, like angels, we are a part of God's creation. But no angel is ever called the Son of God because Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. Second, Jesus' superiority is demonstrated in the fact that as the Messiah, he is worshipped by angels, verse 6. And there's the quoting of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And so... Um, because the the, uh, greater is always worshipped by the lesser. If, if, uh, If Jesus was an angel and not, in fact, the Son of God, then he could not receive the worship of angels because he would be on a par with angels and not worthy to receive their worship. So the, the greater is always worshipped by the lesser, and the fact that angels worship Jesus is again a clear indication that he is greater than angels. Now someone might be thinking, oh come on, this is like, this is, is this like Christianity remedial, or did I get in the wrong class? What, what in the world does this have to do at all with my relationship with the Lord? Listen, buckaroo, you let me preach the sermons around here. You just back off, and we'll get to that question. But I don't want anybody getting unduly impatient with me before we get there. All right? Then notice number three. I'm feeling very good at the moment. I feel like I bought myself some time, which is always valuable for me. In verses 8 through 12, 
uh, notice that as opposed to angels, Jesus is declared to be divine or to be God by none other than God the Father himself. And not just once, but twice. You notice in verses 8 and 9, and specifically there in verse 8, but to the Son, He, that is God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And here you have the God the Father calling Jesus God. And then you notice further in verse 10 that the Father goes even further and more specifically, and he declares concerning the Son, concerning Jesus, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And you notice that the word Lord is in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because it signifies the highest name used of God in the Old Testament, and that is the name Yahweh. And so here is the Father ascribing the term uh, and title Yahweh to the Son. And so uh, uh, just amazing when you look at that verse 8 and you look at verse 10 and it is just like a wow, wow, wow moment. Here you have God the Father ascribing deity to Jesus in a way that is unmistakable and in a way that is undeniable because there's no higher authority on the subject of God than God himself. Now that brings us to the question of why in the world did the Holy Spirit, through the writer of the book of Hebrews, feel it necessary to lay a case for the superiority of Jesus to angels? And that can be frustrating for someone maybe. You just say, my goodness, or what... Why would he need to even say that? Anybody that even has like a cursory understanding of the Bible understands that Jesus is superior to angels. Why invest this time in all of this? And the answer to that would be, it's clear to you, and I'm glad for that, and the Holy Spirit's glad for that, but it's not clear to everyone. And, and sometimes the Bible addresses things that aren't, are perfectly clear to us, but they're not clear to somebody else and vice versa. And so the Holy Spirit knows that there, there isn't great clarity on the minds of a lot of people related to this, and so he endeavors to make it unmistakably clear here in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, why does the Holy Spirit find it necessary to lay a case for the superiority of Jesus to angels. Well, in the past, uh, the, uh, the Jews have had, by the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, they had a long history of uh, great fascination related to angels. And so they would read the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, and they would recognize how often God used angels in their history. And so... There was a great respect for angels, and among some sects of, of the Jews, it went beyond a respect for angels and began to move into a place of giving angels an unhealthy focus or becoming obsessed uh, related uh, to angels. Even in the early church, 
in uh, the book of Acts in that period. There was, in that early church, there were false teachers, evidently, in some of the churches who were drawing, trying to draw Christians into the worship of angels rather than the worship of the Lord. And so Paul was forced to address it in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. He said, let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. In other words, they're putting your eyes on angels rather than on Christ, who is the head of the church, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase which is from God. So apparently, and there was a little bit of this, Peter, uh, uh, Paul describes it as a false humility. And so it was apparently something like this, where the false teachers would come in and say, God is so big, He is so holy, He is so majestic, He is so awesome. How in the world can a sinful, small, little person like me ever think that I could have a relationship with Him? That would be arrogance on my part to think that I could have a relationship with this great God in this way, and so what we'll need to do is just to content ourselves with having a relationship with Him through angels. And it all sounded super, really super spiritual, like, boy, that person's so humble, they don't think they deserve to have a relationship with God, join the crowd. So, but this whole thing of, of just thinking, that, and then they make the rest of us look like, here, we're enjoying a relationship with God, and we love the relationship. He doesn't lose any of his majesticness or any of his greatness by virtue of us knowing him or having a relationship with him. In fact, it makes us more conscious of it than ever. But it, it looked like a humble thing to say, no, I don't think we can really go that far, and we should... Uh, you know, settle for something smaller and maybe put our focus on his ministers like, uh, like the angels. And so it sounded super spiritual, but Paul denounced it as false humility and as nonsense. Listen, if Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood so that you and I can have a personal, all day, every day, all night, every night relationship with God, then then nobody ought to even give a second thought to thinking that you're going to settle for anything less than that. That's just silliness. And so a relationship with God has been purchased for us. It's available to us. And and in any kind of false humility that makes it seem like, boy, we're overstepping ourselves and becoming so familiar in this relationship with God... Paul says, he had, a, he had a short fuse related to it. He said, oh, all of that is nonsense. That relationship is available to us with God. And when we understand that relationship is available to us, then we're not interested in looking for another mediator, whether it's Mary or whether it's angels or some other man or some other teacher or some other prophet who, or whoever it might be, because that relationship is so unbelievably and indescribably outstanding, why would I settle for anything less when I don't need to because of the sacrifice? 
that Jesus made for me to have that kind of relationship. And so it isn't humility. It's actually dishonoring uh, to God. Now, this, uh, uh, in ancient times, and there's a little bit of this today in what used to be called the New Age movement. I don't even know what it's called uh, today. Things are moving so fast in the kind of uh, spiritual circles and, and all. But a lot of people will head into and be drawn like the Jews were, some mystic sects of the Jews, both then and today, and then and Gentiles as well, into a fascination with angels rather than with God. And, 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 and the reason that there's this fascination is, is that people have a sense that there is something more than the natural. So they know that there is a supernatural to life, and they want to tap into that. But you know... Uh, if you do that through God, God's got all these commandments and all these rules, and there's just a lot of baggage, and I'm really not interested in that. I'm just looking into kind of a, a spiritually neutral experience with an angel who's not going to make any demands on me. And so there's this great attraction to uh, angels even uh, even today. Now, this teaching of of the writer of the book of Hebrews is very important to us today, uh, if for no other reason that it helps us to identify uh, two of the largest Christian cults in the world today uh, for the cults that they are, for the, for the twofold purpose of, number one, steering clear of them and never being seduced by them as a Christian, and number two, so that we might be able to have an answer for them, for the reason that we have put our faith in Christ uh, for salvation. And, and so of these two groups, one of them is Mormonism. And contrary to the revela- revelation of the Bible, Mormons teach that Jesus is the literal brother of Lucifer, of Satan. And so this, of course, so that was his origin. And this, of course, runs contrary to everything that we not only know about Jesus in the Bible, but everything that we know about Lucifer in the Bible. Uh, Satan is a fallen angel. And in this passage, we're told that Jesus is greater than the angels, so he cannot be the brother of an angel. He cannot be an angel. The Jehovah Witnesses, they deny the deity of Jesus. They, uh, the, the fact that Jesus is God and God the Son, and they claim that Jesus existed as Michael the archangel prior to uh, his incarnation or coming into the world, and then he became Michael the archangel again at the time of his resurrection. But the writer of the book of Hebrews reveals that this is impossible because as the creator of the worlds and everything in them, Jesus created Michael the archangel. So he cannot be Michael the archangel and have created Michael the archangel. Now, that's the least of the Jehovah Witnesses' problems on a lot of things having to do with their doctrine. The, the big problem with Jehovah Witness doctrine is that they do not believe in the trinity or the triunity of God and in the deity of Christ. By the triunity of God, the Bible teaches that there is one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, well, I thought that one plus one plus one equals three. How, how do you get one? That's a mystery to me. Yeah, it's a mystery to all of us. 
Anytime you have the finite, you and I, in a relationship with the infinite, with God, then you have to get used to mystery because there are going to be things that we simply cannot understand that are bigger than the dimensions that we live in. And one of those things is the Godhead. And the Bible teaches that there is one God manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And no less of a great theological mind, perhaps the greatest theological mind in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he said, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh and, and speaking about the great mystery of how the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they're all one. And so there are things that God knows to be true about himself. He reveals it. One day perhaps we'll understand it more fully, but today we accept it for the fact that it, that it is. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that in the deity of Jesus or in the deity of the Holy Spirit. And so when they come to your doorstep, the problems with Jehovah Witnesses are so many that if you don't become focused in your conversation with them, uh, you'll go all through the Bible. You can spend hours on that doorstep, go from one end of the Bible and back and back and back and forth 20 or 30 times and walk away and never accomplish anything with them. And so it's important when you do chat with them that you focus on the most important subject of all, and that is Jesus, because it has to do with the issue of salvation. When they come to my doorstep, and I thoroughly enjoy talking to Jehovah Witnesses, and I have a great compassion for them. Um, I was raised a little bit in a religious or Christian background, for which I was thankful uh, for, and then... I went out and I did my own thing for a number of years until I found out I wasn't as smart as I was, thought I was, and that this world has nothing to offer independent of God. And so then I came back to God. But I came back to God out of kind of a, a nothingness in terms of being out there, whatever I was, searching around in the world. And so here you have a whole world of people if they're going to go to heaven, and we want them all to go to heaven, whether they're Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or whoever they are, where they're going to have to get saved out of a very, very strong religious indoctrination, and they're going to have to get saved out of a, a religious background in order to get saved. So when they come to my doorstep, I look at it as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And I'm always up front with them immediately when we talk, and I let them know that I'm a born-again Christian, and that I love the Lord and, and, uh, and uh, love to read his word and have a relationship with him. And I let him know that I know that there's a lot of differences between um, Christianity and what they believe is Jehovah Witnesses. And I said, let's focus on the single most important one, and that is what the Bible has to say related to Jesus. And I believe that the Bible teaches that he is divine, that he is the Son of God, and he is God the Son. And I know that you don't, you don't believe that he's divine. And they will readily say, yes, we don't, we don't believe that. And then I ask him and I say, if I could show you in the Bible where God the Father declares the Son. And think about that. If I could show you in the Bible where God the Father calls the Son 
God would you believe that Jesus is God? There's a little bit of a hesitation there on their part. I say it affectionately. And they'll say, the Bible doesn't say that. So that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking if I could show you in the Bible where the Father calls the Son God, would you believe that he is God? I said, that's not in the Bible. I said, that's not the question that I'm asking. I said, if I could show you, and so it goes, time or two or three or four on that, and then typically they'll say something like, well, I would have to believe it, but it doesn't say that. And I turn them to Hebrews chapter 1 because I love them. And I read it to them where they can read it with their own eyes. But to the Son, He, that is the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now you can hear a pin drop on that doorstep. And I realize I have done something very uncomfortable for them and something I would never want to do in another person's life unless the stakes were so high. I have rocked their world. I have shaken the deepest foundation of their life, something that they believed would never be shaken and that they hoped they could never be moved from. And in one verse... I've done that. So I realize I'm in a, I want to be straightforward in this situation, but I realize I'm in a, this is a tender moment here, what's happening here. And sometimes they get very, very uncomfortable with the conversation at that point, and they'll uh, try to excuse themselves from it. And um, one more attempt for me to buy a watchtower or an awake magazine or something like that. And I have great compassion on them at that point. There's about half of the folks that will come to your door of Jehovah Witnesses who when you take them to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, they will have an answer for it. And what they will do is they will say, Ah, yes, but didn't God call men in the Old Testament gods, lowercase g, and he's doing the same thing right here. Now, what they're saying there is all weirded out. It's a way to respond to, to deflect the obvious teaching of what the Holy Spirit is doing here and what the Father is doing here. And so you have to explain that in the Old Testament, God did have teachers or he did have um, elders that would be at the gates of the temple or at the gates of the city where you as a Jewish person hit a situation in your life and you say, I don't know what the Bible says about this situation. So you would go to one of these men that God had appointed to do that. And you'd say, How does, what does the Word of God tell me I'm supposed to do here? That person was charged by God to simply tell you what was uh, from His Word, what you should do in that situation as a representative of God. And God called them Elohim, or He called them God with a lowercase g, 
in that they were representing God by declaring his word into that situation. God was never calling a human being God. So if you stand there with about half of them, it's like they got you stumped. But they don't have you stumped because God loves these people and he loves people that are caught in these traps. And so God makes it unmistakably clear. And I take them to verse 10 and I say, but notice what the father says further concerning the son. He says to the son, you, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, again, the name Yahweh for God in the Old Testament, the highest name, and here you have the Father ascribing that name to the Son. And I have never in, since I've been witnessing to Jehovah Witnesses since 1980, I have never had one have an answer for what the Holy Spirit has done here and that the Holy Spirit and the Father testifying in this verse to the fact that Jesus is God. It's indisputable evidence, powerful evidence for the deity of Christ. And then I will then take them to Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus declares himself to be God, where he said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That was a name of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is clearly ascribing deity to himself. And then I will take them to John chapter 1, verse 1, where the Holy Spirit then describes, uh, declares Jesus to be God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 of that same chapter, the word is identified as Jesus himself. So it's a clear declaration that Jesus is divine. And I'll just say, I have shown you in three passages of the Bible where God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit declare Jesus to be divine. And you are telling me that he isn't. And who am I supposed to believe on this issue? And of course I have to believe what the Bible says. And then I show them what Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders of his day who refused to believe his claims to deity. In John chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus said to them, You are from beneath and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. And therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, that's the name of God in the Bible. Jesus is declaring himself to be I am. For if you do not believe me to be I am, you will die in your sins. Why is it so significant? And I talk with them about it. Why is it so significant, this subject of the deity of Jesus Christ? Here's why it's significant. If he is not divine, he is not sinless. And if he is not sinless, he cannot provide salvation, for he would need a Savior himself. You take his deity away from him... And you now have a Savior who cannot save anyone. You have a dog that won't hunt. 
in this whole big spiritual realm of things. And I want them to know that the stakes, this isn't just like a nice little religious tit-for-tat on a doorstep, but the stakes here are your salvation and my salvation on the basis of who is right concerning Jesus Christ related to things. And, and so those are the stakes uh, on it. And, and then when they leave with that kind of clarity, or hopefully that's been established, I go into my house and I pray for their souls because it'll take a miracle of God to pull them out of what they're in the middle of, just as it took a miracle to pull us out of whatever we were in to bring him to him. Now, you might sit here this morning and you might say, oh, my, I'm a brand-new Christian, or I've been a Christian for 20 years, but I'm just now learning my Bible. I could never enter that kind of a conversation with a Jehovah Witness on my doorstep. Is there something simpler? There is. And it can be just as powerful just depending on what the Holy Spirit wants to do. You can open that door up, and, and there they are. And they come and they want to talk to you about God. And you can say, you want to talk to me about God? That is my favorite subject. Because I believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I am a whosoever that has believed in him. And the life that I have now in Christ is the greatest life that I've ever known. I'm so full of joy. This life is such a blessing. My sin is forgiven. I've got the power of God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit in my life on a daily basis. I've got the confidence of heaven. I know I'm I'm going to be there one day and stand right on that glassy sea and cast my crown before that God in heaven. Now, what in the world are you offering to me this morning <laughs> that can compare with that? Now, you, you say it lovingly, but there is the power of joy and there is the power of peace for even people who are in religious systems that don't know anything about it and they know less about it than even the world knows about it because they're in a double bondage for what they're in. They don't know peace or joy in any direction. And here you are, and they can walk away and think that is the most ignorant but blissful person I have ever run into in my life. And the Holy Spirit will use that to speak to them of what they lack in their life and they know that they're looking for. So there's a lot of different ways. But the main thing for us this morning is that this, to realize that this teaching of the writer of the book of Hebrews is as needed today as ever it was. And Jesus is better than angels. They should never become the object of our focus or our worship. Only God should do that. And no one is more aware of that than angels. The same Apostle John, Revelation chapter 22, he's seeing these unbelievable (laughs) revelations that are happening in heaven. He's hearing all of these incredible things. I'll read to you what he does there. He said, now... 
Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. I love a snapshot of that. Nothing to do with John down at the feet of an angel worshiping him, but a snapshot of the angel, the look on his face up in heaven, and somebody is worshiping someone other than God. <laughs> and the alarm that it creates for him. And the alarm is evident because John goes on and says, Then he said to me, See that you don't do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And so this time that we spend in this passage this morning, may the Lord use it to protect us from ever being drawn into the worship of or obsession with something that is lesser in this whole big beautiful thing called Christianity, whether it's angels or whether it's Mary or whether it's men or whatever it might be. Jesus is better, always Jesus is better. And to keep our, the focus of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength completely upon him. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Hmm.